is Frank Clooney. I'm a professor here in the Divinity School. Uh, not a specialist in Islam or Africa at all. My fields are traditional India and Hinduism and comparative work uh, with Western religion. But I'm very happy to be here. I know I will learn from chairing this session. So jihad is Muslim Africa border shaper or jihadi ideology, what is new, what is not. We have four speakers this morning, as in previous sessions. And I think my job is to introduce each of them just before he speaks, and then also to um, keep time. We have about 20 to 25 minutes for each, and after 20 minutes, I'll hold up my sign, reminding people that they have five minutes left. And that will give us a good bit of time for discussion at the end. So I'll just introduce them very briefly because I think these are known figures to you and, and need no long introduction. Our first speaker will be William Miles, who is professor of political science, science at Northeastern University. He is a prolific author, writer, lecturer, teacher. We talked before and found that he's also been to India a number of, uh, at least once, and we have that in common. Among his recent writings, uh, his many recent writings, 2013, Jews of Nigeria and Afro-Judaic Odyssey, 2014, Afro-Jewish Encounters from Timbuktu to the Indian Ocean and Beyond, and 2014, Scars of Partition, Post-Colonial Legacies in French and British Borderlands. So without further ado, we welcome Professor Miles. Uh, thank you, Frank, and again, thanks for accepting the overtime unpaid duty to chair on a Saturday morning. <laughs> Uh, this morning I speak as a political scientist who, uh, following in the Hindu tradition, would have been happy to be reincarnated as a geographer. Uh, and I speak as a political scientist, uh, some of whose best friends are historians. Uh, and in that vein, I would like to thank Usman Khan, uh, historian par excellence, pour m'avoir invité à ce colloque sur le Maghreb et l'Afrique occidentale. With a political science. With a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> well, bien précisé. So, uh, the major takeaway for my uh, talk today, uh, which is especially good not for you, but for neophytes of Africa who came of age uh, after 9-11, and that includes security analysts within the United States government who all of a sudden discovered West Africa for the first time. Uh, the major takeaway for all of them is that jihadists did not arrive in Africa with Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, Hakim or Akmi. They didn't arrive first with Al-Shabaab. They didn't first arrive with Boko Haram. Jihadists came to West Africa two centuries prior, well before the erection of colonial borders uh, across which the contemporary manifestations of jihadism now evoke such concern. This is what I call the first wave of jihadism, trying to purify the corrupted version that leaders of supposed Islam at the time were practicing. And then a second wave of jihadism emerged during the colonial era itself, what I call the anti-colonial jihadists. Now, 
we confront an anti-post-colonial wave of African jihad. For the political borders of Africa today are, to a very great degree, the same as the colonial borders against which the second wave jihadists revolted. Both previous waves of jihad have something in common with the third post-colonial wave of African jihad, and that is their spatial dimension and what I call the geography of jihad. Despite their differences, all three are border shapers, shapers of the borders of Muslim Africa, or would-be shapers of the borders of Muslim Africa. And it's only by taking into account the similarities and the differences of these three waves of African jihad border shapers can we project scenarios of the future shape of Muslim Africa. So, uh, four quick points about what I call jihad and geography. Um, the first and the most important one is the notion of ummah, which I'm sure uh, most everybody here is familiar with, that there should be a single polity of the Islamic world nation, and therefore non-Islamic based borders are illegitimate. Second point, jihad in West Africa originally arose in empty space in peripheral regions between pre-existing African empires, some of which may have had a titular Muslim leader at the head, some of them which uh, did not. Third point about the geography of jihad is the notion of uh, the ribat, that is fortified posts, fortified by Muslim uh, soldiers, who protect jihadist space from what they saw as infidel territory. So even if our current notions of linear borders did not exist at the time, there did exist the notion of space which was Islamist and space which was pagan or infidel in, in the uh, in the language as translated at the time, and that there needs to be protection between those two territories. Uh, and the fourth uh, is that jihad therefore required governing land. So there is a very topographical notion to jihad in addition to the, the spatial one. Um, during your uh, keynote, uh, Usman, you uh, observed in talking about the transformation of Hajj over the years that nation-state control of borders and movement were very critical in, in changing and transforming Hajj. And you talked about the divorce between scholarship and Hajj in terms of who gave permission and who encouraged each of those two. And that unlike in the past, where the two were very uh, closely connected, they have been uh, uh, controlled by different 
uh, instances of government. Now, you all know how those instances of government in Africa are arranged today. And you are also aware of the uh, heavily Muslim um, uh, concentration uh, in uh, the Maghreb and, and West Africa. But note that these borders are the colonial borders that have been uh, inherited with slight differentiation, particularly within uh, French West Africa, which created out of one single unit, Africa Occidental, several uh, independent nation states. But challenging the legitimacy of these inherited borders from an Islamist and a radical Islamist perspective gives you this. Jihadists do not imagine uh, Africa certainly within the colonial framework of boundaries. And they do not imagine Africa in the absence of the Middle East and the Near East and even Europe prior to 1492 and the Reconquista when Andalus uh, ceased being a heavily Muslim area. So we're talking about negation of colonial and post-colonial borders. And we're talking about cross-border activities by a radical, violent Isla Islamist groups such as Akim, Akmi, which operate here in the, as you see, cross borders uh, of, uh, for Akim, for Boko Haram, and I'll even throw in a little East Africa here of Boko, of, uh, of Al-Shabaab. This gives you a sense of uh, where violent activities have been taking place. And I just want you for now to pay a particular attention to this bubble, this big bubble of Boko Haram's locus of activity, which I think will be the uh, subject of one of the papers on this panel. Uh, doesn't need to be said, but I'll say it anyway, that most West Africans oppose this reimagining, this Islamist reimagining. Most Muslims oppose in West Africa this, is, this jihadist reimagining of borders. But still, we have to take it into, uh, take into an account. And we also need to take into account the links between jihad and globalization, one of the other points that you made uh, in your uh, keynote, um, Usman. Uh, jihad is a response in part to globalization. Whether you follow Benjamin Barber's notion of this as jihad versus McWorld, or whether you follow Thomas Friedman's take on the same phenomenon, the Lexus and the olive tree, but each of them show that globalization has impacted Muslim areas, including West Africa, I'm adding here, uh, in ways that speak to the loss of roots historical roots, religious roots, and there is a local defense against this imposed globalism as they see it, and there is offense against the secular borders 
within, within which uh, the Maghreb and uh, even to a greater extent West Africa has been encased or imprisoned. And therefore, trans-border action, militant action, is necessary to redefine these irreligiously created and defined territories. Operationally, if not ideologically, these actions connect Africa to Europe, to North America, to the Near East and to the Middle East, uh, not on the basis of what uh, capitalist globalization would have it, mercantilist trade, but rather out of Islamic motivations. Now, every movement, uh, the most pure or the most violent, needs to finance itself. And uh, this uh, um, map um, uh, shows part of the um, ways in which that is financed uh, in a global manner. So, pushback comes in the form of counterterrorism. The TSCCTP, I never can say that correctly, Trans-Boundary, Trans-Saharan uh, Counterterrorism Partnership, led by the United States, but that brings together um, the West African nations, which happen to be Muslim majority, who feel most threatened by what um, these terrorist jihadist groups are uh, doing. Uh, in West Africa and the Maghreb. And this particular operation that you're seeing is one uh, which uh, Senegal uh, is hosting. So if you don't mind my moving back in time, let me just show you uh, a little bit about the um, pre-colonial jihad and make a couple, of, well, uh, five points in this first wave of um, colonial, uh, of, of pre-colonial jihad, where, as I said, black African Muslim elites and followers are trying to make better, are, are being forced to become better Muslims. Uh, by the creation of a Dar al-Islam in West Africa, um, uh, areas under true Islamic rule, notice that these are crossing what are future colonial borders, because these colonial borders um, didn't yet exist. And uh, my particular interest uh, happens to be this one, uh, where Usman Danfodio uh, launched the uh, Sokoto-based um, conquest of uh, Hausaland, which there you had between what has become the borderland between Niger and Nigeria at the time empty space, uh, which was negating attempts by uh, two competing Hausa, one more Fulani Hausa than the other, um, negating their limits of authority. Um, again, pay attention, try to make a, a marker, a mental marker of this location. Uh, one of the uh, great uh, recent books that talks about um, this and the Western versus African notions of space and time within the colonial context uh, is this work by Camille uh, Lefebvre, um, translated as Borders of Sand, Borders of Paper. 
history of the territories and um, borders from the jihad of Sokoto to French colonization. And her major point is that the spatial changes which these jihads brought about were not uh, ethnically based. They were more political than ethnic. So an overlaying of politics upon jihad even then. So now let's uh, talk about um, anti-colonial jihad, which resulted because Dar es Salaam, the, the nation of Islam, uh, was falling into the hands of non-believers. That the borders of West Africa, and we can say to the Maghreb, were being established by infidels. And accepting those colonial borders would be betrayal of both the Ummah and the gains of the first jihad, which had practically established this notion of Dar uh, al-Islam, even if they weren't all unified post-jihad empires. Uh, and uh, Usman, I think you mentioned in passing Tijani during the colonial era, Tijani collaboration or uh, supposed Tijani collaboration with French colonial administration. That also was part of what became the anti-colonial and perhaps a post-colonial jihad. So this is the map which shows um, the successful attempts, at least for a time, to negate the new European established borders of Africa. And if I may uh, be allowed an, an indulgence to go to East Africa for a moment, uh, I think the experience of uh, Sudan uh, still is instructive because of the influence that Al-Mahdi, the deliverer, the Messiah, um, so-called Muhammad Ahmed ibn Abdullah, um, who did establish an Islamic state, and that was his uh, term um, in 1890. Um, these repercussions were significant in West Africa, and I'll argue are significant even today. And notice again the transgression of colonial boundaries that that um, second wave of jihadism entailed. So now we're into uh, the contemporary era. As I've said, Dar es Salaam uh, has, uh, needs to be reimagined. From the contemporary African jihadist perspective, there is a reimagining and an expansion on the transnational notion of Muslim identity. Uh, I, is, I don't see Christine who talked about uh, music and liturgical music in a Sufi context, uh, in a decolonization context. Um, it was interesting to learn that even music can be used as an anti-colonial device in terms of transcending those colonial uh, borders. 
Um, challenges similar to the second wave of jihadism, challenges to the legitimacy of post-colonial state and post-colonial state boundaries, and particularly those colonial inherited uh, borders that I've been talking about. So let's put some faces to who these jihadists are. The leader of Boko Haram, Ibrahim Shakao, who remember I asked you to make that um, mental place marker of where the greatest number of violent jihadist events uh, are occurring? Well, I think Abdul uh, Basit Kasim in his presentation um, after mine will refer to the paradox uh, of this ethno-territorial jihad of Boko Haram. I'll just, uh, spoiler alert, say that he'll probably give much more detail and uh, um, knowledge about it. But I'll just say that in the early 19th century, the jihad, the Fulani jihad led by Usman Danfodia was opposed by Kanem Bornu, by the empire of uh, Kanem Bornu now in eastern um, Niger and eastern, uh, northeastern Nigeria, as well as in Chad. And yet Boko Haram, perfect, Boko Haram has made its revolution, or it's the capital of its revolution, in the very territory <laughs> that opposed his, his meaning the Fulani, um, the model of Boko Haram being the jihadist uh, uh, revolution of Usman Dan Fodio. Uh, uh, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, led by Abdel Malek Drukdel, also is trying to uh, dismantle those colonial era boundaries in the name of jihad. But these modern contemporary African jihadists really are standing on the shoulders of earlier ones. The Mahdi from Sudan in the lower left. Samori Touré, well known to historians of African jihad. So I, I never, uh, as I come to my conclusion, um, even before the three-minute uh, marker comes up, I, I never like to leave with such faces. I like to, pref uh, I, I prefer this face of a young uh, Arab uh, scholar <laughs> in primary school in the village where I've done most of my research in, in Niger. Uh, in Muslim Africa, as elsewhere in the Islamic world, the tension has long existed between the Ummah, the idea of a single Islamic nation worldwide, and the reality of the post-colonial nation state. In post-colonial states with Muslim majority populations, the tension has become increasingly acute. The transnational Islamist critique goes as followed, why should such states exist separately at all? 
Why should they be divided by international borders? They are, after all, arbitrary creations of European powers and European power. This is one of the few anti-colonial theses that have united such otherwise disparate actors as Saddam Hussein and his Ba'ath Party who went to war to reunite Iraq with Kuwait, illegitimately divided by the British, and uh, ISIS. Uh, remember Iraq and ISIS, uh, under, uh, Iraq under uh, Saddam and ISIS were certainly not on the same page. Um, but ISIS uh, also uses violence, murder, terrorism to recreate a single Islamic state. So this is the ideological, theological, and geographical conundrum that self-consciously Islamic but politically moderate Muslim leaders in Africa have avoided for 60 years now. How to reconcile the ideal of the ummah with the reality of inherited colonial boundaries. So perhaps the time has come to address the colonial elephant in the Muslim African room. Within time? Yes. <laughs> So thank you, Professor Miles, and we can pray that you'll be born in an Indian body as a geographer next time. <laughs> <laughs> you can continue your good work. Amin. So I would like to, as the setup is going on, introduce our second speaker, Abdul Basit Qasim, is at Rice University. He is a doctoral student pursuing a PhD in religion with a primary field in Islam and a secondary field in African studies. He holds an MA in politics and international relations from Keel University, and his uh, BS degree was from Amadou Bellu University in Zaria. His first book, very precocious graduate student, was the Boko Haram Reader from Nigerian Preachers to the Islamic State, which came out in 2017, which is a uh, collection of primary sources, audiovisuals, and from very, uh, several different languages, so an extremely timely and valuable source. He is currently conducting research on the Arabic writings of jihad in Central Sudanic Africa over the past uh, 300 years and Shiism in West Africa. He is also, in whatever spare time he has, been involved <laughs> in humanitarian projects for the internally displaced persons in Northeast Nigeria. So let us welcome Abdul Basit Qasim. And are you ready to go? Well, good, good morning, everyone. Um, First and foremost, I want to thank our Professor Smankan for uh, giving me this awesome opportunity of presenting my research here at the conference. Uh, this particular research paper is actually part of a larger body of my dissertation research on the intellectual history and the discursive tradition of the core concepts that define jihadi Salafism. 
or jihad Salafi soteriology, including a discursive tradition on Tawheed, on Takfir, on Al-Wala, Al-Bara. So this particular, or this uh, research is actually, for my research, I'm actually assembling all the major works that the Muslim scholars in Central Sudanic Africa have written on the issues of Tawheed, on the issues of Takfir, on the issues of Al-Wala Al-Bara, on the issues of Akimiya, and on the issues of Jihad. So I'm making a comparative analysis between what the scholars have written, starting from the uh, 18th century, and make, I'm comparing them with the changes that have evolved over time in the interpretation of this concept in Central Sudanic Africa. Jihad Salafism itself is a neologism that's actually become a catchphrase. Uh, scholars mostly use the term Jihad Salafism to describe uh, movements and groups that uh, espouse the Salafi canon, but believe in the manhaj of Jihad in, bring, in implementing or, or establishing the Salafi canon. Salafi Jihadism itself is actually defined by five essential uh, futures. The first of them is Tawheed. Uh, and Tawheed actually, I mean, it covers Islamic monotheism, but for the jihadists, they basically look at the way that um, legitimate authority should look like and what it should serve. The concept of al-wala wal-bara, which actually establishes the lines of loyalty and the savoa. The concept of takfir, which actually delineates Islam against everything else and protects it against insidious corruption from within and the concept of jihad, which actually prescribes the method for, for bringing back or establishing this Salafi canon. So jihad Salafi, uh, jihad Salafi movement itself, as we've had a couple of them uh, in Africa, uh, some, where Miles actually mentioned some of them, from Akim to Ikiwahem to uh, Jainahem, Jamaat al-Nasr to Islam al-Muslimin, which was an amalgam of Ansaruddin al-Murabitun, Ansar al-Islam, uh, Masina Liberation Movement, Akathiba al Mulathamun. Now, in my research, what I've actually discovered is that a considerable body of literature that describe the additional futures of jihad Salafi movements in Sub Saharan Africa as an externally induced phenomenon bettered by the cross fertilization of different religious philosophy from the Middle East into Sub Saharan Africa. The facile utilization of the corpus of theological literature produced by jihad Salafi movements in the Middle East to explain the rise and expansion of jihad Salafi movements in Sub-Saharan Africa is actually common. So in the academic literature on jihad Salafism, especially the ones in Africa, we've had this uh, repeated tendency of scholars examining African jihadist movements from the lenses of the Middle, East, uh, Middle Eastern movements. So this scholarly approach actually places jihad Salafi movement in Sub-Saharan Africa as proxies and local clients during the beating of Al-Qaeda and Islamic State on the ground in Africa. Now, this particular approach has actually neglected how jihad Salafi movement in Sub-Saharan Africa, how they actually appropriate historical narratives and theological literature on the concept of takfir, Darul Islam, Darul Kufr, Idra, al blah al bara and Jihad, written by the Muslim scholars during the jihadist campaign in Central Sudanic Africa from the 1800s. So for my research, and uh, I'm actually building on some of the uh, research that Professor Khan um, um, also 
wrote in his Beyond Timbuktu, so Professor Spankan was actually one of the uh, Africanists who argued that the contemporary jihadist movements, they're not necessarily saying something new that we've not seen in the region before. This debate is actually familiar. But for other scholars, there's that uh, attempt to, uh, there's that attempt to portray African Islam as the pacifist tradition and this new uh, theological tendency from jihadist Salafi movement as something out coming from abroad, coming from the region. Just the way, same way scholars argue that Salafism is actually, you know, is something imported from the Middle East into, into Africa. So for this, for my research, I'm actually drawing upon the literature on the Takfil debate in Islamic Africa. Some of this literature were written by Professor Maria Lass, they were written by M.A.L. Hajj, uh, B.G. Martin, Rudiger Sesemen. So for this article, uh, for this research, I'm comparing and contrasting the Takfil discourse of the contemporary jihadist Salafi movement in Al-Sala and Borno, especially Boko Haram and Ansaru. Boko Haram, including the Jamaat al-Sinna, the Dawatul Jihad faction of, Ab of Abaka Shekau, and the Islamic State West African province of Al-Bornari, of Abu Musab al-Bornari. So I'm comparing and contrasting the Takfil discourse of this group with the Takfil discourse of the 19th and 20th century in Al-Sala and Bono. So my research actually shows that although jihadist Salafi movements such as Boko Haram and Ansaru often cite theological literature of Middle Eastern scholars to legitimize their campaign and to boast their scholarly credentials, the sociopolitical and religious milieu that gave rise to their policies of acquisition of unbelief evolved from local religious contestation on the theological debate on who is a Muslim, a debate whose historical precedent dates back to the 19th and 20th century in Al-Salaam and Bruno. So for the first phase of my research, which I uh, commenced uh, last summer, and this summer I, I, I went to Nigeria to also continue the research, I tried to gather all the major works of Muslim scholars in Central Sudanic Africa, all their major works on Tawheed, all the, I use the ALA, that's uh, the compilation of, of the Arabic literature in Africa, the Central Sudanic uh, Africa volume, the one that was compiled by Jim Homing, and together with Professor Mohammed Sani Humar and Dr. Amit Boboy. So I look at the literature and I, I, I selected the literature that actually talks on the issue of Tawheed, on the issue of Takfir, on the issue of Al-Bulaw Al-Bara, and I try to make a comparative analysis that, okay, this scholar's writing during this particular period. What did they say about Tawheed? How did they explain Takfir? What did they say about Al-Walaw Al-Bara? And how has this interpretation, how has it changed over time? And the major reason I embarked on this research actually for two, uh, for two major reasons. Uh, the first is that the more I, I watched, or, I mean, uh, my, my first book, I actually worked on the primary sources of Boko Haram from 2006 to 2016. So while I was working on this project, I was so, are startled by the way that Boko Haram try as much as possible to appropriate this historical legacy for themselves. And unfortunately, most people also say, well, Boko Haram is part of that inherited intellectual heritage of Tomfodio, it's just a continuum. And then I argued, well, it's not necessarily a continuum because there's some things Boko Haram is saying that is new, like, for example, Tekfir al-Ahavir, Tekfir al-Musalsal, and so many other new additional dimension that you don't see in the literature of the past scholars, but also there are some similarities. I mean, so looking at these nuances, the similarities and the differences. 
So the concept of takfir itself, uh, I gathered all this literature from different uh, Muslim scholars in Central Sudanic Africa. I look at the literature on Tawheed, the literature on Awlala al-Bara, the literature on Jihad, uh, the literature on takfir. But for this paper, I will be focusing on takfir. So the practice of takfir itself, the act of excommunication of a Muslim from the fold of Islam for holding or expressing deviant views or committing actions indicative of unbelief is certainly not a new phenomenon in Central Sudan Africa. It actually originated from, um, from the debate about what is a Muslim, uh, a debate that uh, started uh, um, in the mid-17th century. The first evidence of this debate, we, I came across it all, came across the first evidence of this debate in the work of Mohammed Bello titled Infaqo Mansur. Uh, in Mohammed Bello's work in Infaqo Mansur, Mohammed Bello actually stated um, the first uh, debate in Takfir, which was the debate that took place between a particular scholar known as Sheikh al-Bakri and a student known as Abdullah Suka. So in uh, Ausland at that particular period, the Fulani, uh, they had this particular custom where they uh, they uh, rotate around a, a campfire. So Sheikh al-Bakri actually argued that that particular act itself is an act of kufrog that actually uh, uh, expelled a person from the fold of Islam. And Abdullah Sukha, who was a student, actually argued that no, that is not an act of kufrog, that is a kabah here. He doesn't take a person out of the fold of Islam. So this particular debate was the first uh, uh, debate, uh, debate on the field. But even going back before this particular period, the ulamas in Central Sudanic Africa, they've actually written extensively on the issues of Iman, on the issues of Kufr, on the issues of Torheed, on the issues of Al-Halal al Wal-Haram. Uh, some of the works, uh, some of the earlier works in this, uh, on these issues, we have the works of, uh, of Suleiman Al-Wali, who wrote the book Mahaj al-Farid, from Marifa to Ilm al-Torheed. Um, we have the works of Muhammad uh, Abdurrahman al Khati bin uh, al Khati al Barnawi, which wrote the very popular book Shubh Zulal. And then we also have the works of uh, Umar Shatima al Haj al Makrani. We have the works of uh, of Katib Abdurrahman al Yamini al al Ajrami, for al Iman. Now, what is common in all these works that the scholars actually wrote? What is common is they, 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 they dedicated most of this work to the denunciation of astrology, to the explanation of God's creation of the world, and the, cleric, and the clarification of the actions that are permissible and not, not permissible. The major uh, debate on Takfir uh, uh, in, uh, in the aftermath of the literary a revolution that took place in Central Sudanic Africa, where scholars they are writing uh, books in uh, books and explaining a normative concept of Islam to the nascent Muslim community. One of the scholars that stood out during this particular period is a scholar by name Jibril Omar al aqdasi Abu Amana, who died in 1784. So Jibril Omar is often described as the first reformer of Ausland. He had actively engaged in preaching against heretical and, and pagan practices in Ausland, and he had previously attempted jihad in her before, uh, but without success. Now, Jubil Omar, he has a particular book titled Kitabu Takfibi Mahasi. Uh, in Kitabu Takfibi Mahasi, we, we got to understand Jubil Omar's understanding of Takfir. So, Jubil Omar in that book, uh, although we don't, we, we, I'm here to see the manuscript of the book, uh, I had to depend on Shifa Galil of 
Utpanam Fodil, where Utpanam Fodil reproduced uh, the, the, the poetry of this particular book. But I'm, I'm actually yet to see the manuscript itself. But in this particular book, Jibril uh, Umar actually argued that it is not enough for a Muslim to pronounce the Shahada, that is the testimony of Muhammad, and for that person to call himself a Muslim, that is something that has to be added. And for Jibril Umar, he actually argued that everyone who pronounces the double declaration of faith in God and his messenger should be regarded, not, not everyone, sorry, not everyone who pronounces the, the double declaration of faith in God and his messenger should be regarded and treated as a Muslim and as part of the people of the Qibla unless the declaration is accompanied by an understanding of the meaning of the declaration and a complete rejection of the habits and custom that existed in the Jahiliya period. So for Jibri Umar, during this particular period, he saw that the Muslim community, the nascent Muslim community, they were beginning to engage in what he called uh, syncretic practices, or they were blending Islam with what he called the Jahiliya practices. And he argued that it is not sufficient for you to call yourself a Muslim because you declare Shahada. Rather, you have to stay off of this custom or habits that, are, that portrays the period of, of, of Jahiliya. But what was really uh, unclear in the understanding of Jibreel Omar is Jibril Omar did, did not really uh, explain the difference between Kabahir, that those major scenes that does not necessarily expel a person from the fold of Islam, and the actions and the actions of Kufar Akbar that actually expel a person from the fold of Islam. And this is one of the reasons why uh, Uthman Al-Fodu himself, he had to uh, intervene for his teacher, because Jibril Omar is his teacher, he had to intervene and to make this clarification, because not because uh, uh, some other uh, scholars during this particular period, they accused Jibri Umar of having Qawarish tendency because it's Qawarish that actually make, uh, make the feel on Kabahir. But Utsman Amfodi himself during this particular period, he had to come into, uh, uh, he had to intervene on behalf of his, of his teacher in his book, Shifar Galil, Fima Ashkala bin Kalama Shiyukina Jibri. And in that uh, book, Utsman Amfodi tried to make a distinction between the concept of Kabahir, uh, which are major scenes that expel a person from the fold of Islam, and the, uh, and the concept of Kufr al-Akbar, this Kufr that actually takes a person out of the fold of Islam. But there's something also very uh, important here that Uthman al-Fodio actually introduced, which uh, this particular concept was um, this particular concept was actually retreated in the work of Imam Tohari uh, in his book Al Akhirat Tahriya, where they have this, um, where Imam Tohari actually said, um, that we don't do the fear on the people of the Qibla, which is the people which are Muslims, Bithambi, uh, on the basis of sins, Malam except they actually do istihilal of that particular sin. So this concept of istilal was one of the major concepts that Utsman Amfodi used in explaining that, okay, we, or Sheikh Jibri has explained some issues about the fear, but unless there's istihilal on this particular issues, they are, we will consider maskabario that doesn't take a person out of the fold of Islam. Now, in the aftermath of, of, of uh, uh, Sheikh Jibri Umar's of writing uh, on Tekfir, especially his book, Kitabu Tekfir Bima Asi, Utsman Amfudio actually developed what I called a trichotomy discursive tradition of Tekfir. So Utsman Amfudio's understanding of Tekfir was, was not just limited to people who 
who perpetrates jahiliya practices, with Manafudu extended all this on his understanding of the field, he added two extra layers. And one of the layers he added was the layer about the understanding of Darul Islam. So Manafudu argued uh, against the classification of Ahmed Baba. He actually argued that the land of blood of, of Auslan, they are land of uh, of Kufru, they're Darul Kufru, they're not Darul Islam. And he brought this uh, maxim or a or principle where he said, Ukum bilad, ukum sultani he in kind of Muslim, kind of bilad, bilad Islam, or in kind of kafiran, kind of bilad, bilad al kufur, yajibufur, like uh, And he argued that the ruling of the land is that of its ruler. If the ruler is a Muslim, the land itself is the land of Islam. And if the, rule, if the ruler is a non Muslim, then the land itself is actually a land of unbelief, and fleeing from it to another land is obligatory. Now, based on this particular principle, Tmanafodi declared all of Aussie land to be Darul Kufru, and he argued that the Aussie rulers themselves, the Abbey rulers, that they are actually Kafir. That was the second discursive tradition of the Kfir that Tmanafodi introduced. The third was on the issue of Al Walaw al Bara. So Tmanafodi argued against the Karim Brahman rulers. He actually argued. The Karimbaruna rulers, I mean, they accepted Islam even before uh, Islam spread to uh, to Aussie land. Uh, the Karimbaruna rulers, Utsmanafudi uh, argued that it is not sufficient for you to claim that you accepted Islam uh, much earlier than us, for us to accept your validity as a Muslim. Rather, if you do Tawalli, if you do Mawalat with the Abbe rulers, with the Aussie rulers, against our forces, then you will be declared Kafir as well. So Uthman Afodio in his um, in his work Siraj Ali Kwan, this Siraj Ali Kwan is so interesting. Why? Because uh, Shika, Abaka Shekau he really loves this book. Last last year uh, he wrote a book. Abaka Shekau wrote a book. Rasulatuman Afil Islam, and in that book, wow, he extensively cited Siraj Ali Kwan because some of the arguments of Siraj Ali Kwan, uh, some of the arguments of Siraj Ali Kwan actually buttress some 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 of the argument that uh, Shekau himself is trying to. To, to introduce. So for Uthman Amfodio, uh, the discussive tradition of takfir is actually in three layers. We have takfir on those who perpetrate syncretic uh, practices or, uh, or jailia practices, who combine uh, jailia practices with Islam, and if they do Easter Ilal of it, of it it's, it's, it's kufro that actually takes the person out of the fold of Islam. And secondly, he brought the issue of the classification of land, and, and based on, the, on that basis, he declared kaf, uh, kufro on the Abbey rulers, and thirdly, introduced the concept of al Wala al Bara, that for, Muslim, for the Muslim forces, anyone who align themselves against the Muslim forces automatically have also lose. Uh, their testimony of faith automatically they've actually become kafir. Now, all of these concepts, why is it very important for us to have a conversation about them? It's very important because the more we look at the present day primary sources of jihadi groups uh, in Central Sudanic Africa, especially Al-Salan and Borno, we see some of the jihadi groups trying to bring back some of this narrative. And they, they, are, they make that attempt because they know that this particular intellectual heritage is highly revered in our Salah Namunu. And the only way to secure legitimacy from the Muslim community is to claim affiliation to this particular intellectual heritage. I mean, it's also very important for us to note that in Nigeria, uh, it's not just uh, the Boko Haram that uh, it's not just the Boko Haram uh, group that affiliate themselves to Uthman Amfodio. All other sects as well do the same, including the, including the Shia movement of Ibrahim Zekzakim. Now, briefly, in the post-colonial period, 
the Tekfil debate itself was actually revived by uh, Sheikh Abakogumi when he wrote the book Al-Akidatu Sahiha. And it, in that particular book, Sheikh Abakogumi declared uh, the Sufis, he declared them to be Kafir, and he actually com compared them to to, be, to the Jews and Christians, and Shikabako Gumi argued that because of some of the beliefs that the Sufis hold, especially the recitation of Salatu Fati and some, some normative um, uh, interpretation in Jawahir Mahani, he argued that because of some of this interpretation, the Sufis have actually become, uh, they, they have become Kafir. During this particular period, the Tekfil debate itself was reduced to the realm of spirituality. Gumi was arguing together with the, with the Sufis, but it, all this debate was, also, was all in the realm of spirituality, not in the realm of politics and governance. That was about to change in the era of Boko Haram. Now, when Muhammad Yusuf came, Muhammad Yusuf actually argued that it is not sufficient for you to declare the Sufis kafir because they recite Salat al-Fatih or because they owed some normative interpretation from Jawahir Mahani. And then you actually give uzur to the people who are completely not ruling with the Sharia, who are ruling with the Stur or Quranin or the Iyah. He argued that if we need to make the fear of the Sufis, then it's also very important for us to make the fear of the political rulers as well. But for Gumi, uh, for Gumi, for the protege of Gumi, especially the Salafis, those that went to Saudi Arabia to study and came back to Nigeria, they actually argued that before they can do the fear of the political rulers, they have to do what they call a commercial ujja. They have to do what they call Tafsil. They have to make sure that the political rulers do not uh, do not take the Quran and the Iya as supreme above above the Quran or above uh, uh, above the Quran. But Muhammad Yusuf argued that no, that is not necessary because you don't do that for the Sufis. If you don't give this uh, classification or this conditions for the Sufis, then it's sufficient enough for us to also declare uh, the fear on the on the political rulers. Now, for Muhammad Yusuf, let me just be, uh, briefly uh, mention what he said, his own understanding of the fear. So Muhammad Yusuf actually said that all the followers of Sunnah have reached a consensus on the principle of declaring a Muslim as an infidel. Anything that constitutes unbelief, if an unbeliever does it, is already an unbeliever. No query. It does not have to become an unbeliever. But if a person is a practicing Muslim and he performs the actions of unbelief, then we need to follow the principles of Ridda, the principle of apostasy. First and foremost, it should be that the person does not have any interpretation that he hides behind, whether it is a vast or a date, even if it is weak, as long as he does not know it is weak. Second, it should not um, it should be clear that he does not have doubt. Uh, that makes him see his action as good, and there's no reason to eliminate that doubt. And thirdly, we also need to be clear that he received no message at all, notifying him that his actions is wrong. Fourth, there's also the case of doubt, misinterpretation, and, and coercion. This is uh, Muhammad Yusuf's understanding of the Kfir. Now, after the death of Muhammad Yusuf, Shekau also brought his own interpretation of the Kfir. So Shekau uh, implemented what is known as the Kfir Muthlaq. So Shikar came up with this idea that the old Muslim population itself, they're all kafir. No, he didn't just stop at that. In his recent, uh, in one of his recent work, uh, the, which was, this is our creed, as a new edition of it. Shikar actually argued that all the descendants that stayed in, in northern Nigeria after the, after the, um, after the decimation of the, of the Shukutu Caliphate by the British, they are all apostates. Shekau argued that his own fathers, his own grandfathers, they are all apostates. And he said the reason was because they agreed to stay under Darul Kufr. So Shekau brought this uh, understanding of, of, of his own unique understanding of the Kfir. He didn't just stop at that. Shekau also argued that whoever engages in democracy, whoever gives wala to the uh, political, to the secular political institution, has also automatically be become a Kafir. And there's no any need of you know, ad adhering to some shirut or some conditions. Now, Abu Musa 
Musab al-Bagnawi actually argue, Abu Musab al-Bagnawi is the son of Muhammad Yusuf. Abu Musab al-Bagnawi argued against this uh, Shikha's understanding of the field. So for Abu Musab al-Bagnawi, I, uh, so this is the way they actually, this is the difference between, I think I will stop here, the dif difference between Abu Musab al-Bagnawi and Shikha's understanding of the field. So, secular political leaders, soldiers of the Nigerian army, and members of the civilian JTF, the civilian JTF is the local vigilante, uh, group in uh, northeast Nigeria fighting against Boko Haram. Now, Abu Musab al-Banari and Abu Musab al-Banari faction is the Islamic State in West African province, and Shekau's faction is the Jamaat al-Sindawi which he had. Now, these two factions—they are the major faction of Boko Haram at present. These two factions actually agree that the political rulers, the soldiers of the Nigerian Army, and the members of the civilian GTF—they are all kafir. They are all infidels. They have an agreement on this issue. Now, Abu Musab al-Banari and Mama no, its unfortunate actually because Mama no himself was actually on August 20, 21st, Mamanu is one of the leaders of Boko Haram and he was actually killed by, uh, by the members of Boko Haram. Boko, by the members of Boko Haram. So Mamanu and Musa Babunawi actually, they, they do not issue takfir on Muslims who do not view these uh, actors as, as, as kafir. They actually argue that uh, they excuse the Muslims they excuse the Muslims that this particular civilian JT health political rulers, they cannot be declared as, as they cannot just be, they are kafir, but the Muslims cannot be declared as kafir if they do not view these people as kafir. Rather, the Muslims need to be told, they need to be taught that these people are actually kafir, and if they still insist on not seeing them as kafir, then the, then the Muslim population itself will be seen as kafir. And lastly, I'm going to end there, and lastly, uh, Shekau himself actually has this uh, very weird understanding of the Kfil, Adir. Shekau brought this understanding, uh, which uh, is actually encouraged in the theology of Qurayj, Shekhar brought this understanding that if I declare Abu Musa Babamanawi and Mamanu as kafir, if, any, if, if other people do not view them as kafir, that person has also become a kafir. If the person, uh, I mean, so he has this musalsal, this takfir musalsal, and we don't see this actually in, uh, in the discursive tradition of takfir that we've, uh, in the pre-colonial, um, in the literature of the pre-colonial Muslim scholars. So in, 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 in a nutshell, this research is still an ongoing research, and I actually love to receive like uh, any um, uh, recommendation or, or advice on the, on, as I pro make pro progression in this research. Thank you so much. <laughs> so thanks to uh, Mr. Kasim for a wonderful paper. Uh, we have, we're moving along well, I think, with our program. Our next speaker is Dr. Zekaria Ahmed Salim. Uh, he is a pro associate professor of political science at Northwestern University and director of the Institute for the Study of Islamic Thought in Africa in the Program of African Studies. He specializes in Islam and Muslim politics in Africa in a comparative perspective. A whole range of topics are listed here in terms of how the religion and politics cross lines, and I, I won't read all of that. But he is author of, of many publications, many different books, and one is coming forth in English uh, very shortly, Preaching in the Desert, Islam, Politics, and Social Change in Mauritania. So let us welcome Dr. Salim. <laughs> Thank you. Hello. Um, yes, you hear me here? Thank you very much to, I am very grateful to be here. Thank you really, Usman, for inviting all of us here for this wonderful gathering. I've, I'm learning a great deal from the wonderful presentation and interactions with my colleagues. 
I am also pleased to be here in my capacity as director of ICITA, which is <clears throat> the first institute for the study of Islam in Africa in the US. Uh, Usman Khan was there at the very inception of that organization, and I think there is a, a brotherhood between our two programs that we are both happy to, uh, to, to, to entertain. So my main, um, my initial title has changed, of course. Uh, I was supposed to be assessing the Salafi current in the Islamic Republic of Mauritania. But halfway of my writing, I realized that I need to take a step back and I'll explain why. Now, I will still assess the Salafi current in Mauritania, but uh, pretty much in line with, with the theme of this conference, and I will explain how. So my main research interest in this, in, in Islam and politics, is in the entanglement of religious and social change, and therefore the entanglement or the interaction of political and social and religious change. I study how religious belief and practices are affected or are affecting social hierarchies, race relations, and the political in general. But I'm also interested in state management of the religious sphere, especially in self-proclaimed Islamic republics such as Mauritania, which is frankly an ideal place to study this kind of topic. So I'm very lucky for that regard because I'm Mauritanian and I don't have to go far. Uh, of course, as at least nominally a political scientist, in Islam, I am often approached with requests to speak or write as an expert of, or a scholar of terrorism, especially with the rise of terror and war on terror in, in our region, which is the Sahel, Sahelian Africa. But in fact, I'm hardly an expert or a scholar of terrorism or radicalism. Of course, as someone who lived my whole life in, in Mauritania, I have paid close attention to political development and my previous book, I devoted a chapter, and my publisher was very happy about it, to radicalism. But I was focused on the social dimension of radicalism. And it will become clear how I was shifted the focus on that. So I conducted close readings of the declaration, the treaties coming out of the Salafi sphere, uh, and the writing produced by Mauritanian radicals and jihadists. I have also um, always nevertheless felt very well equipped to offer a straightforward analysis for, say, the drivers of terrorism or how to prevent extremism or what will happen next and what are the terrorists up to. I really not, not competent to do that. So I don't feel very comfortable studying terrorists and their thinking their plans and their likely next move. I think it's an understatement to say that jihadists or any other violent actors don't lend themselves to ethnography, which is my favorite methodological approach. They don't lend themselves to participant observation, of course, and they don't share, they don't share their plans with us. And if they, they, I don't think they despise anybody more than expert on terrorism. 
But if that's of any comfort, they despise everybody and they want to kill everybody. So, <laughs> um, so I can't really practice this kind of qualitative approach. So I'm very, I feel always illegitimate. I have the imposter syndrome when it comes to study uh, uh, jihadi Salafism. Because we are all left to study the jihadi message and to try our best to put their actions and discourses in context. But there are a number of methodological and theoretical problems with that. I, I don't need to explain them here. At the very least, we remain bound by the way activists and militants package themselves or choose to convey their ideas to us. We thus interpret their actions after they take place without being able to document the inner working of the groups, the decision-making process, their real motivations, their strategies, or without being able to reconstruct properly their biographies, something as simple as that. This is why I have recently, I have been inclined personally to focus on what both terror and the war on terror do to politics and society and even religion. And also to what they do to our own scholarship on these topics. This shift in my research interest stems from a simple realization. We are all under huge pressure to give a straightforward analysis of the root causes and the ideology of terrorism. But more often than not, this is somehow, especially in Europe and Africa, this has been done at the expense of our ability to put in perspective and to learn more about the genesis of war and terror, the way policy circles operate. Uh, and it has also been done at the expenses, expense of being able to really measure the significance and the long-lasting impact of the era of terrorism on our societies, religion, and scholarship. Yet we need to increase our effort to push for shifting the focus from terrorist studies to historical sociology, historical sociology, or meticulous contextualization, or even critical studies of concepts such as Salafism, Jihad Salafism, radicalism, moderation, deradicalization, countering violent extremism, and all the narratives that are hidden there that nobody is willing to tackle for obvious reasons. But this is, of course, trying to be as objective as this is, of course, of course, easier said than done. But we can at least try. And I can give you my experience with trying that. Uh, recently, I've been asked by French colleagues. I was trained in France. You can. Um, take yourself out from France, but you can't take France out of yourself. <laughs> so uh, I've, I've, I was trained in, in France, in Sciences Po. I have many colleagues and love the country, love the people. Uh, but I have been asked by a leading, I think it's the leading African politics journal in Paris, which is Politic African, to co-guest edit with Roland Marshall, who is an expert on Somalia, to co-edit a special issue on radicalization. So we, we said yes, and of course they were surprised because they knew our view on this. And uh, we crafted our call for proposals, uh, and we decided to title the special issue Radicalization, Science, and Politics in Africa. 
We made it very clear in our call for paper that we are interested only in critical studies and all, almost begged the potential contributors to propose an examination of the impact of radicalization studies on politics and society. We asked them also to refrain from submitting, submitting proposals describing how and why so-called radicalization is happening, yet 99% of the proposals we received dealt with topics such as the root causes of terrorism, how to curb Islamic radicalism, Salafism in Africa. Most contributors wanted to take stock of what is happening on the ground, which is legitimate, or to offer explanations of why radicalism is on the rise, as though we are in shortage of such explanation. Some others shared anti-terrorist strategies outright, yet almost all potential contributors took for granted the validity of the conceptual apparatus and the ter very terminology and concept we have precisely asked them to deconstruct and to analyze. Therefore, very few of them took their distance with the terminology of policy circles. None of these contributors were interested in exploring what the terror and anti-terror lenses have done to our scholarship or to study of Islam in places like Africa. This is very indicative to me of how the war on terror has affected our scholarship agenda. The special issue is now out, but we were able to find only four papers uh, and four authors were willing to take a step back and to reflect on the usual approaches in order to complicate our research questions and methodologies of research. With this in mind, in this presentation, uh, which is very much, very, very much a work in progress, I've, 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 I've been still working on it this morning, I hope to be able to address partially some of the important questions Professor Usman Khan raised in the call for this conference, namely, how to assess intellectual connections between West Africa and North Africa and beyond, meaning the Arab world. Specifically, I will try to ask the question that frames this particular panel, which is what is new and what is not in terms of extremist ideologies. I'll try to answer this question by sharing preliminary conclusions, reflections, drawing on my previous research on Salafi thought and practice in Mauritania, but mostly drawing on my current project, which is called Global Shankit. Shankit is the ancient name of Mauritania. I think for the last two days, we've heard Mauritania in every, almost every single presentation. Maybe not on the one in musicology, because we don't, we're not good musicians, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but Mauritania was ubiquitous in all the presentations. And it's a very powerful place in terms of Islamic scholarship, and this is a historical turn. So my project is uh, to analyze the global circulation, influence, and trajectories of Mauritanian scholars abroad and in and beyond the Muslim world. So I draw on these two uh, research findings uh, uh, in order to argue that the success of Muslim scholars from West Africa in Saudi Arabia doesn't transform them in champions of Wahhabiyya of Salafia. And reading my colleague's um, William Miles paper, I, he just mentioned a fact, uh, but we can interpret that fact, that most jihadis uh, in the 19th century Africa have been to Hajj or some, somehow learned to be jihadi or extremist or reformist in Hajj, which is true. 
but it's not valid uh, in every context in Africa. So I argue that the success of Muslim scholars from West Africa in Saudi Arabia doesn't transform them into champions of Salafia, let alone into champions of jihadi Salafism, whatever defined. In addressing the question of what is new and what is not, I would argue that there are so many ideological or religious discontinuities between current formulation articulation of Salafia idea with previous ones, previous ones. More precisely, I would like to argue that neither jihadi Salafia nor even Wahhabia have ever had a lasting influence in the religious or social circle in Mauritania at least. Then I will try to address the following puzzle if I have time. Why is Mauritania reputation as the place where some high profile international terrorists, and I think you heard this, Chicago was trained in Mauritania, a Libby who used to be a close ideologue in Al-Qaeda in the last days of Osama bin Laden. He died before Osama bin Laden, but he was in the last year of Osama bin Laden. Was also trained in Mauritania and married to Mauritania, and that's a fact. It's not a rumor like Chicago Sejar in Mauritania, which is not sure, not documented. They are rumored, these high-profile international terrorists are rumored to have received training in Mauritania. How then was Mauritania a been able to, the only country in the region that is both an Islamic Republic but who was able to tackle the terrorist threat, threat quite effectively and I think Anwar can document that more, more, more in detail. So my objective is, is to challenge the receivers wisdom that African societies are passively under the influence of some sort of intellectual connection from more conservative part of the Muslim world which leads them to do, be more extremist and more violent. I would like to challenge the narrative according also to which African Muslim picked up Salafia or jihadi Salafism in Saudi Arabia or elsewhere in international Salafi circles and then started using them to adopt religious conservatism and even jihad in, in Africa. To do this, I will try to do three things. Um, and I hope I have time. So first thing I will show I will show a few examples of Mauritanian scholars who established themselves as central figure in the Saudi Arabia or international scholarly circle. But I'll show that they never really entirely converted to Wahhabiya or outright jihadi Salafiya, etc. They were never enthusiastic importers of the uh, Wahhabiya ideology, contrary to what we think about African scholars based in Saudi Arabia. I can identify actually only two intellectuals who really went to Saudi Arabia, came back to Mauritania, and tried to uh, be, to stick to the Salafi Wahhabi script. And I will explain why those two particulars were able to do that, even though their impact is now very, very thin. Second, I will show that the first modern day Mauritanian jihadi are not outright Salafi. Although they are accomplished intellectual and Islamically trained individuals, they never preached Salafia openly or even in their writings. They were nevertheless actively more involved in international terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda and at a very, very high level as you will see. Third point maybe, if I manage to get there in time, I'll have enough, uh, if I have enough time, I'll offer a partial account of short-lived experience of jihadism in Mauritania and how religious powers, including Salafi ones, worked closely with the government in order to undertake a very, very, very unique experience of de-radicalization 
religious deradicalization and, and also bureaucratic deradicalization. So, global Mauritanian scholar in Saudi Arabia. I focus here only on people from Mauritania, internationally in the Muslim world no, known as Shanaqita, as they are called in Saudi Arabia also. In Saudi Arabia, you have Muslims from all over the world, of course, uh, including from West Africa, but I focus only on, on, on Mauritanians here. Uh, in this scholarship, the majority of them is lab labeled as merely a bunch of Wahhabi converts who couldn't resist the pressure of the Muslim establishment to renounce to their Maliki Mazhab and their Ash'ari Ash creed and theology or their engagement with Sufism. So I would I'd give some examples that run against that uh, received wisdom in few papers devoted to these scholars. In reality, the vast majority of influential ulama who flourished in Saudi Arabia resisted firmly the full conversion to Wahhabia and sometimes confronted their Saudi peers about it with pay, without paying any price at all. So the majority of these ulama were trained in Mauritania, maybe that's uh, an important factor, before going to the Hajj. All of them were originally trained and raised in scholarly families belonging to the Sunni Maliki Ash'ari complex, as we call it. Of course, this was very easy before uh, before the uh, Saudi clan or Saudi family took over. Back in the early 20th century, it was very easy to be anti-Wahhabi because the Ottoman, uh, the, the, under Ottoman rule, uh, especially with the Hashemite prince of, who, who, who used to run the Hijaz where Mecca and Medina are located, was fiercely anti-Wahhabi for a simple reason. They, they were at war with the Saudis who were based in Majd. Back then, West Africans have settled in Medina and Mecca, as Usman Khan has shown us today. Back then, the Hijaz was ruled by the Hashemite Hussein bin Ali, firstly opposed to Wahhabia. So being anti-Wahhabi was very trendy and <coughs> this is a big payoff. But uh, I can, it's, we have documents documented this period, which is very interesting. And always feel very odd to hear somebody preaching at Tawahabiya openly in Saudi Arabia at any given time. <laughs> so this is very recent, fairly very recent in historical terms. This is the early 20th century. And we have a very detailed account given by somebody from Morocco. <laughs> uh, and Taqidin um, al-Hilali um, is this famous of Salafi Globetrotter, who is the main character in Harry Lozier's book, The Making of Salafia. And, um, and Taqidin Hilali, who died only in 1987, was very active, uh, 87 or 84, I don't know, I don't, I'm, in the 80s, uh, was very active in the Salafia and circles, and Harry Lozier's book, The Making of Salafia, is wonderful because he really traced him and try to track down the changes in Salafia creed and propaganda uh, through his, his biography. So Taqidin Hilali in his memoir and his travelogue memoir give ample details. Really? Uh, okay. He did give ample details about his dealings with with uh, a certain Mayab, Muhammad Habibullah Mayab, who was the 
brother of uh, the famous or infamous, if we are Tijani, <laughs> author of the famous uh, or infamous anti-Tijani yes, uh, Salafiyya, uh, Muhammad al-Khadir. So Muhammad Habib Mayaba is very influential. He is um, well-liked by Hussein Ali the Hashimit. And he was teaching in the Mecca Mosque, and he was very established. The Mayaba family moved from Mauritania because they issued, they thought that the president, French presence in Mauritania in 1905 uh, is, makes it obligatory for Muslims to visit the land because it will become ruled by non-Muslim uh, administration. So they left uh, and went to Morocco and then ended up in Saudi Arabia. So Muhammad Habibullah Mayaba uh, meets with Al-Hilali, according to Al-Hilali, and he, he is very aggressive against Wahhabi, of course, and he's in line with the official policy of the rulers of Mecca back then. And he said to, uh, to, to Al-Hilali, you Wahhabi, you are of three kinds, three types. Those, those from Najd are outright kuffar and believers. Between them and us, Sunni, there is a gulf similar to the one between Islam and, and, and Christianity on one hand, and Islam and Judaism on the other hand. Second, the Wahhabi from Sham, Syria, and he was clearly alluding to, to Rida, uh, etc., and his school, you are, and he says to Al-Hilali, this is according to Al-Hilali, you, Al-Hilali, you are one of them. You are simply Dullah, you are heretics. You are on the wrong path. As for the Wahhabi from India, well, they are mistaken. Their case is not as, as, as bad as yours. So, shockingly, when the Saudis took over in Saudi Arabia, uh, and this is also according to Al-Hilal, who, who doesn't like Mayaba. Mayaba go to see the king, and he try to preach uh, against Wahhabia, which is crazy. So, <laughs> so he had to flee anyway, but he was courageous enough not to change his hat and to become celebrity from it. So this is a proof. I can also give, I have now to go very quickly, I guess. So this is a bit, I'm sorry. I, we can't have more? Oh. Okay, sorry. So I can also give another example of this. Um, so I have to jump. Uh, Muhammad Lamin Shanqiti was one of the most influential. According to Olivier Roy, he's one of the main minds behind the flourishing in the 70s of the Wahhabiyya and the Wahhabi outreach in the Muslim world. But in reality, when I examine his writing and his rihla in Africa, because he was sent by Saudi Arabia and Africa on a tour in the early 60s to preach Wahhabiyya allegedly, when I read his Rihla Ivriqiya, his travelogue to Africa, I couldn't find anything really Wahhabi beyond the affirmation of one element of Tawheed, which is Ayat Sivet, so the attributes of God. He was pretty much into anthropomorphism, and this is in line with Wahhabism. But he didn't attack Sufis. He didn't display any animosity toward the way Muslims practice their religion. So we have detailed account of that travel, and we have his student. And this is somebody who was the only maybe non-Saudi who was, maybe with Al-Albani, who was sitting in Hayat Kibar Ulama, the council of the great 
scholars in Saudi Arabia, which is supposed to be the Vatican of, 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 of Wahhabism. So he never really has been really an outright, an outright defenders of, 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 of Wahhabia. Even in contemporary time, two living person, persons, Abdullah bin Bayya, whom you all know maybe, this is the guy Barack Obama quoted in, before the General Assembly of the United Nations as very ecumenical, very in favor of, of peace and dialogue between civilization. He also is the one who is behind the training of Hamza Yusuf, and he's a mentor of his, etc. So he's a very influential global, global Muslim figure today. He lived for, from 1978 to 2005 in Saudi Arabia. Tot, time is up. I'm so sorry. So I was so ambitious. Huh? So uh, I, can, I can just some jump to the other structure. So I give a number of examples, but two, pers two persons who are unknown in the historiography of uh, Saudi-Mauritanian relationship are, I am trying to excavate one of them. One of them is already known, Al-Hajj Mahmoud Ba and, uh, and, and another figure called Majike. These two persons, went at a different time to Saudi Arabia, but they are coming from a lower lineage. They are not coming. One of them is a blacksmith, one of them is a Fulani from a very poor family. And both of them came back, one in the 50s, to open schools and to really attacks, attack uh, established families, Sufi families like the Tal families. Uh, Majike established, even created a Salafi institute in Mauritania, in Kifa, which I visited last year. So he was very much present, but they were attacked, they were vilified, etc., even though they were backed very strongly and with, by Saudi Arabia. They, they were never able to be legitimate because they come from a lower caste, I would say, and they were never able to really influence the public sphere in Mauritania. So I don't have the time to answer that puzzle about how Mauritania was able to curb terrorism, but I think, Anwar, please talk about that. I'm sorry. Thank you very much to Professor Salim for opening up so many doors and so many more things to talk about. But we do want to uh, continue and then have a few minutes before, for discussion before the coffee break. So our fourth and final speaker today is Professor Anwar Bukhars, who is a professor at uh, McDaniel College. He's a non-resident scholar at Carnegie's Middle Eastern program. And at McDaniel is a professor of international relations. He was a fellow at the Brookings Doha Center. He's a very well-published author, including the uh, 2010 book, uh, Politics in Morocco, Executive Monarchy and Enlightened Authoritarianism. He's also a co-editor of a number of books, including 2013, uh, Perilous Desert, Sources of Saharan Insecurity, and the list goes on. So let us give maximum time to Professor Bukers to talk. All right, thank you. <laughs> All right, so I'll, uh, morning. I'll, I'll talk about the strategic incentives you know, for insurgents to embrace extreme ideology, and I take the case of the Sahel and, and the Maghreb. So one of the nagging questions about this persistent wave of insurgencies, you know, in the Maghreb-Sahel region, is that they continue to be characterized, 
They continue to be defined by extremist ideologies. So after the violent jihadists in, you know, discredited Algeria's insurgency in the 1990s, the assumption, at least the, what we thought was reasonable, was that dissident rebels may want to avoid the adoption of extremist ideology. Why? Because first it alienates the majority of the local populations. You know, it fragments the ranks of rebels and then scare away external supporters. At least that's what we learned from the Algerian case. So given such negative marginal returns, it is puzzling that transnational and local, you know, jihadi Salafism remains that insurgent repertoire in the Maghreb Sahel crises. More perplexing is that this extremist ideology has become the tool of war par excellence, as well as the ideological focal point that rallies the support of different aggrieved populations. So since the Algerian terror groups relocated to northern Mali in the early 2000s, I mean, rebel leaders evolving in the Sahel, they have become more inclined towards adopting Salafi jihadism as a means to survive, to recruit, and to outcompete other contending armed actors. So this is a strategic choice that is informed by strategic conditions on the ground than by just automatic commitments to a core set of extreme religious beliefs. In other words, rebel entrepreneurs and their rank and file supporters and sympathizers do not have to be diehard ideologues. They do not have to be violent, you know, religious extremists to lead or to buy into transnational local groups defined by radical ideological platform. They just need to think that their choice would yield dividends, especially in contexts of state fragility and societal upheaval. So that's why this presentation focuses mostly on the benefits that rebels um, and their supporters, you know, calculate they may accrue from adopting Salafi jihadism as a tool of insurgency in the Sahel Maghreb crises. So in so, in so doing, try to, I try to show how jihadi rebels, you know, of, of why they, they are slated, unfortunately, to remain the dominant challengers to existing regimes in the region, even if ironically their chances of achieving lasting victories is slim. And this is the, the paradox. Jihadi insurgents, they continue to thrive today, even when they have failed to translate the advantages they have into lasting positive outcomes for their followers. Because the downside for, as you know, for adopting such extreme revolutionary identity, Salafi jihadism, is that when taken to extremes, it can provoke popular resentment and even counter-mobilization, as Al-Qaeda experienced firsthand in Iraq 
in 2008 when its excesses led you know, the Sunni tribes that initially perceived it as its protector to help defeat it in 2008. Jihadi insurgents also tend to invite US drone strikes. They also tend to invite regional and foreign military interventions. The most notable, as you know, is the international coalition that drove the so-called Islamic State out of Iraq and almost out of Syria. Also the French military-led campaign in 2013 that drove the extremists from the, the territories they controlled. So, so this is the major paradox today of modern jihadi insurgencies. You know, they remain a staple of modern day insurgencies, you know, in, in several countries where Muslims constitute either a majority or minority population. So the question is why? I mean, they can't win, right? They haven't won, uh, or at least they have not translated the advantages they had into positive outcomes, but this is still the dominant repertoire that most groups use. This is the puzzle. Well, it's tempting to attribute the prominence to Islam's presumed core teachings. You know, it's tempting to attribute this prominence to the natural inclination, you know, of the most pious for a violent reading of religious texts. But actually, you know, in several conflict-affected areas, the adoption of jihadism as a tool of war continues to be viewed as a rationalist choice to contest, you know, or to violently contest the status quo. Yes, these groups are composed <coughs> partially of highly dedicated core, fair enough. Yes, they invest a great deal of their time and energy on indoctrinating their recruits, fair enough. But it's also not rare to see the occasional softening of ideological constraints. We have seen them tweaking their ideological messages to feed the dictates of particular circumstances here. So in some contexts, religious ideology intermixes with ethnicity, with opportunism, with shady criminal activities. So it's therefore more analytically sound to analyze jihadi groups such as ISIS and, and other groups in the Sahel as revolutionary actors that just happen to be religious. You know, whatever the case anyway, Salafi jihadism remains the only available form of radical revolt on the market today. To use Olivier Roy's famous expression, this Islamization of radicalism, it forces us to rethink why the discontented, why the marginalized, why the repressed have found in jihadi ideology the right paradigm to guide their rebellion against the system. But unlike Hua, his assertion that contemporary jihadis, as he says, are motivated only by the nihilistic destruction of the status quo. I mean, I argue that rebels adopt Salafi jihadism because it offers the promise, you know, of imagining alternatives to political and social systems that are deeply corrupt and that are deeply unjust, certainly in the Sahel, but also in parts of the Maghreb. 
So as the case of the Sahel and the Maghreb demonstrates, in environments that are pervaded by bad governments, uh, governance, I'm sorry, that is, you know, that are pervaded by intense inter and intra group tensions, individuals and groups, they tend to embrace any group out there that can offer them assurances of survival and also, you know, of profit when possible. In other words, people join rebel groups and alliances based on relative power calculations. This does not mean that shared identity does not factor in individuals' considerations. I mean, of course it does. That's why one of the reasons why jihadi ideology intersects with ethnic, sectarian, and social status configurations of society. You know, as, as you do brilliantly in, in your book in, in, on Mauritania. For example, both Ansardine and Mujal, the movement of oneness and jihad, they emphasize radical Islam as the main founding block of their groups. But when it suits their purposes, they don't hesitate to appeal to race and ethnicity to recruit. I mean, in the case of Mujal, the group initially tried to dis distinguish itself from other groups whose sociological makeup is Arab by initially styling itself as defender of black African identity. So when the group ended up itself being a constellation of mostly Arab tribes, it quickly repositioned itself as a protector against the untrustworthy other, the untrustworthy ethnic other, in this case the Tuareg. So the key here is the emphasis on protection and capability as Mujal and other groups, they know full well, especially in the Sahel, that, uh, that alliances are not primarily driven by a shared repertoire of religious beliefs and community identification. In fact, an appreciable number of the rank and file, you know, cadre of these jihadi groups base their choice of alliances, first and foremost, on tactical necessities driven by security considerations fear, the fear of the other, the fear of the state, and also of opportunism, which is greed. And I think the cases from the Sahel and the Maghreb, they lend credence to this thesis, which argues that there is a strategic logic behind the alignment and the ideological choices that insurgent leaders and their followers make. So what is the instrumental value then of jihadi ideology? Why adopt it? Despite the drawbacks that I talked about. You know, it invites drone strikes, it invites international uh, interventions. So in the cases when you have competing warring groups, in the cases where you have ethnic and religious fractionalization and a history of state misrule, the basic challenge of rebel mobilization, how do you mobilize, how do you recruit, is the collective action problem. Because individuals' natural inclination is to free ride conflicts, especially given the high risks, I mean, and the costs of participation. Why would you join a radical group, knowing that you know, a drone might take you out? So insurgent groups, they try to mitigate this collective action dilemma by different things, jihadi or otherwise, by providing selective material benefits, protection, money, social services, you know, so that they recruit you. 
But extremist groups have the added advantage. They do offer these things, the protection, the money, and social services, but they use ideology wrapped in religious ideas to motivate, to coordinate, and to retain recruits. In fact, several scholars have shown how armed jihadi groups, they instrumentalize, you know, or they instrumentally emphasize those virtues of faith and self-sacrifice, you know, uh, in redeeming the suffering and the humiliation of the target communities, those that they want to recruit. So extremist ideology helps rebel leaders kill two birds with one stone. You know, Barbara Walter wrote a brilliant piece on this in the context of the Middle East. She showed how violent extremism helps draw the most devoted recruits on the cheap, minimizing both the collective action problem, and she also says the principal agent problem principal agent problem arises because rebel leaders, they struggle to control the behavior of their soldiers on the ground. So the assumption is that the most dedicated recruits are usually the most loyal fighters. And this is very important in contexts when you have rebel competition, like the Sahel, when you have several switching sides, when you have several realignment of alliances. This is more the norm, as you know, than the exception. So when you have fractured environments, extremist groups can also become appealing to moderate individuals as they appear as the only group able to fight and as the only group able to follow on their commitments to reshape state-society relationships. This is very critical in the early phases of conflict. Why? Because the recruits that tend to flock to groups, you know, usually are the most dedicated ones, and they have the potential to win. They have a fearsome reputation for enforcing law and order. That's why it's no coincidence that an essential theme in the discourse of these jihadi groups today, you know, is morality, it's honor and justice. These are well-known Islamic commodities that are oppressed, exploited, discriminated against individuals and communities they desperately crave in the Sahel and in the Maghreb and elsewhere. So this reputation for ideological purity and justice also comes in handy in contexts where armed groups have tenuous connections to local communities. You know, if you are an Algerian, I mean, how do you integrate yourself in northern Mali? Yeah. So in contexts rife with competing factions, there are several competing factions that are aiming to recruit from the same population. Religious ideology and reputation for law and order is crucial to lure the most fervent believers and to rule the most risk-acceptant fighters. Remember, again, the first movers are usually high-quality rebels who create the impression that their armed struggle has a good shot at bringing about radical political change. Regardless of how extreme the ideology might be, the future prospect of radical political transformation, buttressed by this promise of immediate access to guns, to protection, to money, ends up luring even more moderate individuals into the orbit of jihadi groups.
That's why jihadis have the advantage in the Sahel. You know. Field case studies, including my own in, in, in the Maghreb's border areas, they have documented how in contexts of socio-political instability, the temptation for aggrieved individuals and communities to join armed groups that can defend them is high. Several of young Fulani people talked about it earlier. In the conflict areas, affected areas of Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, field studies, they reveal how for a number of young men, jihadi groups appear as logical allies in environments that are teeming with myriad armed groups. There are tons of armed groups there. Some of those armed groups are believed to be supported by abusive security services. So again, this demonstrates that the decision to join ideological group is primarily driven by relative power considerations. In the case of the Fulanis, young Fulanis, jihadi groups, they offer the promise that their armed struggle might yield, and they have a good shot at winning, of yielding an alternative socio-political model that is inspired by the ideals and the principles of Islamic law, in this case. Islamic law as it's understood on the ground, meaning justice. These are the commodity of what it means, social justice. So in the more immediate term, jihadi groups are appealing because they tend to possess enough fighting power. Remember, they have been successful at recruiting you know, those first die-hard fighters initially, and that's important when a group starts. So they're appealing because they tend to possess enough fighting power to help Fulanis defend themselves as well as compete over access to natural resources with rival factions, such as Bambara and the Dogon farmers in central Mali, the Dosak herders in northwest Niger. So stories abound about how jihadist appeals stem from their ability to fight, to provide security, and also from their ability to dispense harsh rule of law. It's this revolutionary character that is buttressed by this revolutionary discourse, which happens to be moralizing discourse, that built the credibility and reputation of jihadists as enforcers of order and purveyors of security. So if several scholars and NGOs and journalists today rightly highlights the brutality and harshness of such enforcements, how brutal these groups are, you know. Even if it's important to note, the cruel application is very inconsistent of law. Interviews with those who lived under jihadist rule, they reveal, in fact, a more nuanced assessment of their tenure. This helps explain why a non-negligible number of people today still turn to jihadists for swift justice and protection. Some, ironically, even for they long for the days, you know, when AQIM controlled Timbuktu, when AQIM cracked down on criminality, theft of cattle, theft of motorbikes, you know, when AQIM cracked on moral failures as they see them, prostitution, alcohol, 
when AQIM enforced justice, however harsh that justice might be. That's why I said there is a nuanced assessment here. Because much of what we read is that, you know, under AQIM and under Mujaw, they dispense extremely brutal form of justice, which it was, but nonetheless, those that lived interview show, and the Dishashul, they have a very nuanced understanding of, of how AQIM ruled. Radicalism also serves as a branding strategy. Sure. Armed jihadists in the Sahel, and also in the Maghreb, and frankly elsewhere, they have quickly learned that ideological purity and religious zeal, it can act as a useful branding strategy that differentiates you from rival groups. I mean, the case of Ayad al-Ghali here, I mean, is, 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 uh, is revealing. This guy, Machiavellian, as you know, fixture of the Tuareg insurrections in Mali. You know, according to several observers, al-Ghali's embrace of extreme ideology was determined by the fast-moving events that led to the January 2012 uprising, launched by the secular nationalist movement liberation of Azawad. And some of those that joined Al-Ghali, I don't need to cite here the name, I don't have time, did not share the radical ideology he set for his organization. But for Al-Ghali, adopting Salafi jihadism, you know, was a good branding strategy that differentiated himself from the Emirate, which didn't let him lead the group. Uh, Mujah has an even deeper ambivalent relationship to religion, this group. So in an environment marked by intense fear, by uncertainty, by competition among different insurgent factions, the leaders of Mujah, they understood that the embrace of radical ideology could quickly yield a critical early advantage in recruiting, remember, those most dedicated fighters, the first one you recruit. Because you need those first dedicated fighters, tough fighters, so that you can build a winning force that can, over time, entice the support and acquiescence of the population you target. And the population often is religiously moderate. So as in the case of ISIS in Iraq and Syria, where religious zealots, they intermingled with aggrieved Arab Sunnis, including officers from Saddam Hussein's secular army, Mujal's rank, same thing. It saw a non-ideological wing intermix with a hardcore ideological, uh, with a hardcore religious one. This cohabitation between these two helped explain why Mujal's application of harsh law was so inconsistent. So inconsistent. So in contexts infested with widespread corruption and predation, religious values and beliefs, no matter how extreme, they provide a recruiting advantage. So to sum up, the main argument is that the importance of radical ideology in the Sahel and the Maghreb, and as it you know, Walter shows in Iraq and Syria, you know, stems from the instrumental value and normative commitments that the ideology gives. For rebel leaders, radical ideology helps their groups recruit. Radical ideology also helps the leaders stand out 
That's why Agil Ghali adopted radical ideology to differentiate himself from the secular MNLA and also to stand out. For aggrieved communities, and there are many of them, the unfortunately, there are situational incentives to join in a winning coalition. As Osama bin Laden once said, when people see a strong horse and a weak horse, by nature they will like the strong horse. It's human nature. In this view, it's not the presumed religious radicalism of young men that determines alignment choices. Rather, it's the strategic gains that leaders and their rank and file members aspire to gain that determines when armed groups, individuals and communities opt, that determines which armed groups, communities, and individuals opt to join or support. This only confirms that jihadi <laughs> armed groups, they have found a niche market, especially in areas where you need to have, obviously, the state institutions, including the religious one, are fundamentally illegitimate ones. The political institutions are illegitimate. The religious institutions are even worse. Yes, and this is pretty much, I mean, the case, you know, in much of that. So viewing Islamic fundamentalism as the main driver of modern insurgencies misdiagnoses the problem. A growing body of research is showing that the endurance and proliferation of Salafi jihadi groups in the Sahel is not due to increasing levels of religiosity and frankly even to global religious dynamics. Rather, the most determining factors are local in nature. First and foremost among them is the abusive dysfunctional government. So unless we, we address this, what we will continue to see, unfortunately, is that the challenge to state authority in the Sahel, in the Maghreb, will continue to be characterized and unfortunately dominated by extremist ideologies. Thank you. Thank so you. thank you thank to you. Dr. Appreciate Bukhars it. and to all four panelists for wonderful presentations. Usman, do you want to go into the break or take 10 minutes for questions? What do you want? Uh, I really want to ask one question. <laughs> yeah, I have many, many other questions, but one to Anwar. Uh, are you arguing that it's not the uh, loud voice of grievance but the silent voice of greed, which uh, uh, caused these uh, conflicts to persist. I'm thinking about fully, uh, fully. Fully greed and grievance, economic agendas in Singapore. <coughs> I think we don't have time to discuss too much, but is it, is it the main argument? Is it, uh, because that's the message which came through to me. Well, the, 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 it, it's both what, I, what I'm saying. I mean, you need to have the grievance, obviously, right? But here- Just a, just a small number of, of the people you know, are motivated by grievance. Well, the majority, no, no, I mean, the, the grievances, this is what, 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 what shared out there. The grievances against, you know, corrupt state institutions, you know, co-opted religious institutions. But what I'm, what I'm doing here is, 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 is trying to explain, you know, the continuing success of these armed jihadist groups, right? The main argument is that they lost in Algeria, and look at now what's happening in Iraq and Syria, but the paradox is that, goodness, I mean, you, you think that folks would look for something else, for another paradigm. But that's not the case. Is that Salafi Jihad continues to, make, to be the main repertoire. 
But of course, you need to have the grievances. Without grievances, you won't have. I mean, obviously, this, this movement. And the greed element also is, 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 is fuels it. But what I'm trying to explain here is, is how do they recruit? Why are they quite successful you know, at, at recruiting? You know? and, and here, Salafi ideology is, you know, is a radical ideology. It serves as a, as, as a branding strategy. It manages to, to help drive the most dedicated, especially in the beginning, of how armed groups you know, formulate themselves. So you mitigate the, collect the collective action problem, you mitigate the principal agent problem, and then you have a normative aspect to it. So three things in there. And we can, we, we can pursue that, I think, because I know. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Professor Lupina has a question, and then maybe we could go into the coffee break and talk there, so yeah. check that out. Uh, sorry, uh, it's a very fascinating presentation. And the larger question which scholars have been dealing with, not only within Islam, mm. but also radical Christian evangelical mm. mm. is exactly dealing with that. Okay. The tension between this mental functionalist explanation okay. and the more substantive theological So uh, I think it's very difficult to pick one out of the two. There seems to be the need to do a balancing act in the interpretation. Uh, 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 otherwise, even at the popular level, if you, if, you, if you go to Nigeria and ask them about Boko Haram, there's a tendency for Muslims, called Muslims, to say, this is not about Islam. This has to do with instrumental, economic, political, you know, the kinds of argument you are pushing. And then the non-Muslim will say, no, this is about Islam. So mm -hmm. the, we need scholars like you to, not to solve the problem, <laughs> but you know, to use the word to put it in a more nuanced way so that we can have a better understanding of what is happening. Mm -hmm. It's a larger question in the study of religion. Thank you. All right, thank you. So thanks to everybody, wonderful panel, and we need more time to discuss it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.